Again, I want to welcome you to our gathering. Uh, as we get settled in, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open it uh, to the book of James. James is found in between Hebrews and First Peter in the New Testament. If you don't know where that is, it's okay. It'll either be up on the screen or you can look at the table of contents at the front of your Bible and find it there as well. Uh, also, as we settle in, I want uh, to, uh, man, say a quick thank you uh, to Brett and the rest of the team, everyone uh, that helped serve last week, uh, and for Jordan Elder that came in and preached in my absence as my family and I were on vacation at the lake. Uh, man, being uh, spending a week on vacation, there's a lot of things I learned, but three things really stuck out to me. One, I love watching the Olympics. Uh, we probably watched more TV on vacation than we ever have. Uh, and uh, we spent most evenings, we would get done with dinner and everyone would go and hang out on the back porch and we would just watch the Olympics together. And so uh, that was a really good time. Next, kids are a bottomless pit of hungry. Uh, that's probably the phrase we heard more often than not was... We would eat breakfast and 10 minutes later, hey, I'm hungry. Or we would, you know, eat lunch five minutes later, I'm hungry. It was all, I'm, they were always hungry, uh, which made me hungry. And so I ate all the time too. Uh, and then lastly, I love launching kids off of twos on boats. Uh, like I find some, there's some kind of deep joy in my soul when I see a kid just fly off into the distance and then wave their hands in the air to know they're okay. Uh, we had a blast. It was a really, really good time. Uh, but man, I'm glad to be back. Uh, it's, uh, I told, uh, as we were praying at the beginning, I don't know what it is, but every time I leave and go away for a weekend, that Sunday, I always seem to preach or start a new series, which I'm like, why do I do that to myself? Uh, but man, I'm excited to uh, jump into the book of James. Uh, we're going to be in the book of James through this month. And then as we do every year for the month of September, we're going to break for our value series where we're going to look at really four specific things that we want to be known for as good neighbors in our city. If you know our mission or vision statement, it's that uh, man, Center Church seeks to be good neighbors to Brenham uh, by joyfully displaying the good news of Jesus in every area of our lives. And so we're going to look at really four things that, and if I, if I could pray something, uh, hope for something, long for something as a church, uh, it would be, man, for us in this season, these four things. And then we're going to jump in to James again, and that'll lead us to Advent. Uh, so the book of James, uh, man, I believe that if we were to take a moment and if I were to take a poll, and ask you, what's your favorite book in the Bible? Or what are your top three favorite books in the Bible? James would probably be, for the majority, in the top three, if not most people's favorite book in the Bible. Uh, I know for me personally, like James was a book that I read right after I graduated high school. Uh, the first guy that ever discipled me uh, when I was in college, uh, he set out a challenge where we were going to try to memorize the book of James. We made it a chapter. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it is something that man throughout my life, throughout my time following Jesus, that has been very impactful and transformative. And I think that as we think about that, as we enter in, man, I think the reason why, I think there's a couple of reasons why James is like that, why it's, uh, such a pivotal, 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 there we go. Third time's a charm, pivotal book and transformative book in people's lives first is because the, the book of James is filled with practical wisdom. 
Man, from the start, James just, man, just, it seems like nonstop. It's almost like a, a drinking from a fire hydrant of just these little tidbits of practical wisdom that you can just grab a hold of. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, I don't know if you're like me, but I'll get done reading a chapter and I'm like, what just happened? Well, what can I glean? What can I pull from that? God, what does this have to say about my life? And it's all good and there's stuff there. But man, there's something about James and, and these wisdom books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and even Psalms that really draws out just these things. You're like, man, I, I mean, I can grab onto that. I, I may not know what's going on in these other parts, but man, when I read James, I know what's happening. And so we have that, but also the other thing that James does is James, over and over again, presses us to active faith. And man, I believe that that not only does it press us to active faith, but one of the reasons we lean into this is because that's what we like. We are doers by nature, are we not? Like we find there there is a, a natural tendency in all of humanity to prove oneself. And from a young age, like it doesn't take a child long for you to go up to them and they say, no, I'm going to do it. I I can do it, right? I can take care of that. We have this natural tendency. There's something in us that wants to prove, that wants to find identity in what we do. It can define who we are because that's who we are by nature. We have something to prove. Man, in light of that, I want to challenge each of us up front, even before we read the first verse of this book, is that we would beware of this type of faith. While active faith is good, that we wouldn't make it something where it's like, oh, I need to just do. Doing is good when done in light of what has been earned on the cross for you, not in the hope of what you think you might still need to earn. That's not good news. That's not what James is after in this letter. You see, my hope is that we would see this book as a fruitful letter that would reveal to us not only the implications of the gospel in one's life, but the transformative power of grace that gives us the right heart to live out those implications. You see, without the right heart, you read the book of James, you read any of the Bible, and you leave it thinking, okay, I have to do these things to prove myself to be who God wants me to be. But that's backwards. The the gospel says, no, this is who you are because of what Christ has done. Now go do. Don't leave this series with simply, I need to do more. And so with that, we're going to jump right in. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, We're going to make it through the first eight verses today. So James 1, 1 through 4 says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So a little background on this letter. This letter was written uh, to a variety of believers. 
to Jewish Christians, but also to Gentile Christians. But really, uh, we're going to see uh, that, that his focus is on these Jewish uh, Christians. Um, but it was written sometime before AD 50, which puts it probably as the oldest book in the New Testament. Of, of the 27 books, this letter was probably the first that was written. It was written by who? James, uh, we get that in the beginning, right? Like this is the letter that James wrote. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now again, while James grew up around Jesus, he was not a follower of Jesus. Actually, if you read in, in the book, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus' family initially thought he was crazy. But you see, post-resurrection, James experiences Jesus as the resurrected King and Messiah. And he, he would eventually become one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. If you read in Acts 15, James is the one that presents the argument at the Jerusalem Council. And Paul would later describe him as one of the pillars of the early church. And we're going to talk more about who James is shortly But there's one more thing as we enter in that I want to kind of lay out from the start. When we read the book of James, some would say that the book of Galatians that we started the year with and the book of James seem to contradict one another. See, what we're going to see really quickly uh, is that while Galatians says you were saved by grace alone and not by works, right? There's nothing you can do. It's all of grace. That's what we talked about from January all the way through May. What James is going to present us with really over and over again is that, that, that faith without works is dead. And so most will take, they'll say, well, Galatians says this. It's grace alone through faith alone. There's nothing you can do. But James is saying faith without works is dead. Those are two competing things. And I think that when you hold them in that way, the way we tend to lean is either on, we swing from one side to the other, depending on the season of life, depending on what we're walking through, uh, depending on really where our identity is set. We're either going to set on the side of, hey, it's grace alone, through faith alone, there's nothing I can do, or we're going to be over here saying, oh, i got to do something. And so we think that they might oppose, but rather... Because all of Scripture is God-breathed and it's all telling the same story, we need to see them both as being true in light of the Gospel. It's two truths from the same source, for we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but the product or the fruit of saving faith in Christ will always, I want to say that again, it will always lead to the fruit of works. Living faith that only comes through Christ's finished work will always lead to the overflow of good works in the life of the believer. You see, what this letter is meant to do, and we see it from the start, is it meant to enlarge our practical understanding of faith. Arkin Hughes says there's one thing clear in the book of James, and it's that the dominant theme is faith, real faith works practically in one's life. That is, true faith is a faith that works. And so as we hear that, that leads me to a few reflections. First, this type of faith, 
goes against the easy Christian labels that have built out much of our evangelicalism. It goes against the coffee mug bumper sticker faith. It goes against the name it and claim it faith. It goes against that the reality that I grew up with was, well, my family, they're all Christians. We go to church. It goes against that type of faith. I get in because of my name, right? The second thing this presents is that what we have to realize is that what God has and is doing in you, God is and wants to, it will use that through you, right? The faith that He's growing inside of you, He wants to, you to use that faith actively. And so what that means is you have a part to play. We are all proclaimers of the gospel in word and deed. It's not just the select few. It's not just the people that come up on stage on Sunday. All of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a part to play. Not only that, active faith impacts every single part of your life. And usually that happens in the everyday mundane things, right? In your workplace, at home, with your spouse, with your kids, in your neighborhoods, at sporting events, in the grocery store. And so as we get into this letter, what we find is that it begins with a servant's posture. James says this, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is an appropriate title given the practical servant oriented emphasis of the book. Man, when we get that, the the first sentence, the first verse is James, a servant of Christ, of God. Is that how you introduce yourself? Man, likely not. Not only that, but if we were to press further, how long is it? Like in in your relationships, if you meet someone new, how long is it before they know that you're a believer? I mean, does it take them a day? Does it take them a week, a month? I mean, do people that you've worked with for years, do they even know that you follow Jesus? If you were to ask them, or if they were to be asked by others, would that be something they said? See, I believe much of what we share is just self-centered, not Christ-exalting. Much of what we share is, well, I mean, I'll get to myself in a second, but you share your name, and then what? My name's Nathan, and I own a landscaping company. My name's Craig and I do septics. You know, like we find our identity by what? By what we do, right? By what we've accomplished. It may not even be work. Like, hey, I'm Kyle and I'm a Cowboys fan, right? Like, and some of you feel sorry for me. And then I feel sorry for you if you're not, okay? I'm going to hold on to it, guys. This is the year. uh, As it is every year. Um... We find identity in those things. By what we do, we, we attach it, we attach value to those things. You know, for me, like I feel at times, and it's, it's kind of become something that I wrestle with and uh, become kind of a game. I don't want to tell people what I do because it immediately they change. I told you all a few weeks back that I, I went somewhere and as soon as I told someone or they found out I was a pastor, they walked away. 
And so about three weeks ago, me and Nathan, my brother-in-law, were playing golf and we met the guys on the first tee and man, they, they were consuming some things and they were saying some things, many things that I hadn't, I hadn't heard ever. And so we just go about it and, you know, we're about three or four holes in and they, they know Nathan and they're like, you know, talking to him, but they don't know what I do. And we start thinking, how long is it going to take? How long is it going to take before they ask Kyle what he does? And we're like, we're not going to say anything. We make it 16 holes. And they've still been consuming things and saying many more things. And we're just sitting there, you know, because like what I want them to know is, man, I'm, I, I want to get to know them, right? And, and finally, I, I'm about to tee off after 16 holes. And I hear the guy goes, hey, hey, that guy right there, he's a real good guy. I wonder what he does. And the other guy goes, well, he owns a landscaping company. That's Nathan. And he goes, no, not Nathan, that Kyle guy. And he goes, hey, Kyle, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a pastor. They blew up. They flipped out, right? Like, what? Oh, my gosh, you know. And they didn't change a bit. <laughs> and part of me, I was like, oh, man, like, I didn't, I didn't want him to change just for the sake of me saying that. But what it did was it created conversation. They started making these little comments, Right. You know, oh, I just need to be humbled or I need to be. And, you know, I got to just make little comments back. And, and, and but it is those things like we that's where we find that's where we find rest. And that's where I like I could easily just go behind that and be like, well, look how great I am to other people, to y'all. If I say, yeah, I'm a pastor. Y'all are like, yeah, <laughs> like we know you, Kyle. Um, but that's what we do. But James doesn't do that. You see, James understands where security comes from and, and that it produces service before God and towards others. You see, James, for, for James, faith is no abstract proposition, is not some buzzword. Rather, it affected his life and the world around him. His faith produced action. But it was the action of a servant-hearted leader you see, for James, the life of faith impacts every area, it impacted every area of his life. And it drove him to truly engage in the lives of other people. That's what he's writing in this letter. And so, man, what I hope, like, again, I said at the beginning, there's so many little things in James, little bits of practical wisdom. And what we can tend to do is we can tend to pull out, like, oh, I like that part. Oh, I like, I don't like that because it convicts me. So I'm going to push that to the side, but I like these. Uh, no, what James is doing, don't, don't see it as bits and pieces. James is building out this picture of what, what faith is, how it works out in our lives. Again, my prayer is that we would not see this letter as a list of to-dos, do-mores, and get-it-togethers, but that it would go deeper to reveal where we get doing before being wrong and where we need to root out our doing first in a love for God above all else and second in a love for others before ourselves. So James says he's a servant of God. I love that he begins with this. You see, he could have easily pulled the family card. He said, I'm James. I'm Jesus' little brother. I don't know if you know that. Um, he was perfect. Dealt with that in counseling, right? Like he could have said something like that. But he doesn't. He says, no, I, I understand who he is. And man, I'm a servant of the king. He doesn't establish rank, which again is what we do. 
It's what Brenham does. Your name means a lot here, right? Bib or a bob, right? <laughs> like, I'm, I, I'm 10 years in, I'm a bob, I'm okay with it, all right? Like, but that, that's what we do. But if I go back to my hometown, man, Ogle carries weight, right? Good weight and bad weight, okay? But when I go back, like, hey, Haley experienced this. Last time we went to Heiko, we called to order a pie because that's what we always do at the coffee cup. And, and we're, she's on the phone and the lady says, who's this for? And she said, Haley Ogle. And the lady goes, oh, I know Haley Ogle. And Haley gleamed and she got up the phone and I said, you know they were talking about my cousin Haley, right? Because my cousin is Haley Ogle. And so she knew her, but Haley was like, it just made me feel good. I felt like they even knew me. And they, she was like, I know they don't. Just let me carry it, right? But it carries weight. James doesn't do that. He begins with the posture of a servant. He is following in the steps of his older brother. Man, may we do the same. One more quick note I would like to add to help establish this posture of a servant. Uh, one of the things I love about James is that he, one of his nicknames was James the Just. He, he was a man of immense piety. He was a man of immense humility. A historian shared a story. He had interviewed someone and a guy said that, he, that the new James said that James could be constantly found in the temple alone on his knees crying out in prayer for the forgiveness of others. So much so, this is the way the story goes, that his knees became calloused and began to look like the knees of a camel. And so another nickname, so the story goes, is that his nickname was Camel Knees. Because he was in constant worship before God. And I believe that we would do well to grow some calluses on our knees in prayer rather than just on our hands by what we do and our hearts by how we shut others off and become cynical. See, I believe prayer for others, and man, this is... This is something that, as I wrote, like this was really convicting to me. Prayer for others is one of our greatest acts of service towards others. Do we think it that way? Our first thought is, what can I do for them? And one of the greatest things we can do for one another is pray for one another. So we get this intro, and then we get the introduction to the audience. And he says that it's to the 12 tribes and a dispersion. Now, the scope of that audience is pretty broad when you consider that the scattering of Jews known initially as the Diaspora came about in about 700 B.C. whenever the Assyrians took over and exiled all the Jews out of Jerusalem. But along with this, I mean, this is more likely in terms of the general audience that James is writing to. Uh, what happens is following, if you read the book of Acts, following the flourishing nature of the early church, uh, Stephen is killed and at the end of Acts 7, and it says that the church becomes persecuted. So this guy named Saul, who would later become Paul, right? Uh, he begins to persecute the church and they begin to kill and arrest and, and, and seek to destroy the church. And so what happens is the early church scatters. And they move from Jerusalem and first they go to Judea and Samaria and then further they go out to the Mediterranean, right? To the rest of the Mediterranean and the known world. Which fulfills Acts 1 verse 8 when Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which to the ends of the known world was in all of the Mediterranean. And guess what? It's continued since. His his name and glory has continued and it moved from the Mediterranean to Africa to Asia into Europe and then over to the Americas. And, and, And now what we're seeing is we're seeing revival take place in places like Brazil and China and Iran. And and these revivals are just stoking the fire of God's name being known. And so this has happened, and these Jewish Christians, they not only find themselves dispersed, but they are at odds with Jewish leaders, but they are being exploited by the Gentiles. You see, the followers in the early church to whom James is writing, they were for the most part homeless. They were exploited, disenfranchised, and and more or less, they had less value than slaves. This is to whom James is writing. And it's odd because he says that and he knows what they're dealing with. And he starts the letter off. He says, hey, count it all joy when you go through various trials. Now that's one of those things, if I'm the people listening to this letter, and even today, like you have to go back and make sure, did he say what I think he said? Does he not know what we're dealing with? You see, when we even go back and read it to make sure it's read correctly, because man, this, if we're honest, goes against the status quo of our general rejection and aversion to suffering, does it not? We don't like trials. We seek the path of least resistance. In society in general, but especially our culture, tells us to make ourselves feel good and avoid suffering at all costs. To run from our problems and trials. Man, I would argue that society would go so far in some cases, and I believe it does, to say, hey, if you're in the thick of it, man, what you need to do when it comes down to it is make sure you're okay before making sure anyone else is okay, right? It's like being in the woods with someone and a bear starts chasing you. Like, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the other person, right? It's like, I'm looking out for me. If they trip, I, maybe I helped them trip. I gotta, I've got to get there, right? I'm going to avoid suffering like that. But you see, while this statement is odd and even crazy on the surface, man, this statement was needed not just for those hearing it then, but for us reading it now, because it is totally different than how we often respond to trials. Our common responses are run. Avoid, belittle, or is to sit back and judge others, condemn them, say, well, if they wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't be in that trial, or man, they must be doing something wrong. Or maybe, oh man, I must be doing something wrong. And at times, man, there's consequences for our sin. But we look at trials and and not the way James looked at trials. The New England New English translation says that you should be supremely happy. When trials come. And so what does James mean when he says count it all joy? Well, let me begin with what he doesn't mean. First, he's not arguing for some type of fatalistic, happy-go-lucky, emotive joy. Nor is he arguing that we should actually enjoy trials. 
I've told you all this before. When my mother passed away, I began, man, I didn't know how to grieve. And, uh, and the, the place, the, the, the place I was working at, which was a church, they said, well, you just need to have the joy of the Lord, Kyle. And what they meant was you need to, like, it, it was a false joy, right? Like, just, just put a smile on your face. That's not what James is getting at here. Trials, and I want us to hear this today, are not fun. Trials are not to be enjoyed, but for the follower of Jesus, we understand that we can carry joy because every trial points us to our ultimate victory that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Guess what? In Jesus' life, death and resurrection reveals to us over and over and over again that while trials will come, the victory has been won and all things will be made new. And so count it all joy. See, to count it all joy is to take deliberate and you, like, you have to be deliberate. To take deliberate and an intentional posture to experience joy even in times of trouble. And again, I want you to hear this. I'm talking about joy and not happiness. God doesn't care about your happiness. He's after you receiving and living in and from the unshakable foundation that only the joy of the gospel can bring. Note what he says next. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials, not if you meet trials. Due to the brokenness of our world, we all will experience trials. That is an all world issue. But by God's grace, we can and should respond differently to the trials we face due to the fact that for the believer, trials produce things in us we cannot. We get two examples of that in verse 3 and 4. First, trials produce steadfastness. This word steadfastness can be translated as staying power, fortitude, or toughness. In life, it is only through testing and prevailing that we gain steadfastness and fortitude. While through testing and failing, we gain insight and understanding, it is only by way of prevailing by grace that we gain the steadfastness we need to continue on. And I think the problem, though, if we're honest, is that for most, we're just not willing to be tested. We want the victory, but we don't want the testing. We want the life in the gospel, but we reject the call to come and die. The steadfastness we need and that which James is calling us to comes no other way. And man, if you try to cut corners, you only make a bigger mess of things. And so often in the midst of trials, like what I'll do is, well, I'll just, if I can just do this, or I, I try to build out a formula to get myself out of it. And man, I only create a bigger mess. The, the example I can give is if you see a, a butterfly in, in a chrysalis, and if you walked up to it, and maybe you think, hey, it's kind of struggling to get out. I'm going to go ahead and just cut that thing open and just let it be free. If you do that, while you think that's helping it, actually you destroy the butterfly's life because part of the butterfly building strength and its wings and it getting strong is the struggle of getting out of the chrysalis. And that's what we do in life. Like we just want that, man, I just want the path of least resistance, please. But in doing that, we gain no fortitude. We don't gain steadfastness. 
We never develop the strength to fly. The second thing trials produce is maturity. You see, steadfastness, James says, when it has its full effect, which, man, man, I think we need to just lean into full effect. Are you letting what's God have His full effect in your life, no matter the circumstance? It's really easy in those good moments to say, yes, God, like keep that coming. But in the midst of trials, are you saying, God, I want this, man, I want this to be fully used for your glory and my transformation to be more like you. It has to go deep enough. See, God uses trials in our lives, man, to dig down and press into those areas where we're maybe worshiping other things. Man, a trial is meant, it's God saying, you know, I need to get deeper to root that thing out. These kind of trials and steadfastness, he says that it leads the follower to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that you'll never struggle with sin again, as we know. Rather, this language points to the fact that the refining fire of trials leads to a dynamic maturity that changes one's whole life. You will look different. I've shared it before. If I got hit by an 18-wheeler and walked in here and just said, yeah, I just kind of got, I got hit by an 18-wheeler going 70, but I, I limped in. Y'all be like, no, you didn't. Because if you got hit by an 18-wheeler, like going 70, like you're going to look different. You're not going to be able to walk in here. That's what these things are meant to do. This is how we are to view and walk through trials by God's grace. And so let's continue because following this revelation regarding what trials produce, James continues by presenting us with what to ask for in the midst of trials. Verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, now, before I continue, I want to ask a quick question. When you're presented with a trial, what's your usual response towards God? How do you usually respond? Why? What's another response? Help! <laughs> Get me out of this, right? That, those are our usual, like, deliver me, or why me, Right? God, I've been doing all the right things. Why me? But this is not how James calls us to respond to trials. Rather, he says, look, if you lack wisdom in the midst of a trial and how to respond to it, he says, what you should do is not say, why me? Not say, help. Not say, get me out of it. But say, God, give me wisdom. James is calling us to ask something we often don't, which is say, God... In the midst of this trial, give me wisdom so that I might understand you better. Give me wisdom that I might understand who I am in you better. Give me wisdom that I might understand what's going on in the world around me and how I might share your glory with others. And we have to stop here because my fear is that when we hear wisdom, we automatically move to knowledge. 
You see, we pride ourselves about what we know and we aren't afraid to let others know how much we know about things that mean nothing at all in real life. To take it further, while you can know a lot about a lot, it does not automatically mean you have any wisdom at all. I would argue that oftentimes our great appetites for knowledge are only there as a way to cover up the reality that we are starved for wisdom. According to one commentator, wisdom in distinction to knowledge is wisdom is understanding for living. And biblical wisdom is understanding for living that surpasses all earthly knowledge. Not only that, but man, for many of you, maybe you grew up doing Bible drill and you know a lot of verses. But you guess what? You can have the knowledge of a lot of verses and still have no wisdom of the Bible. It's allowing the word to press in and get deep enough that brings change. And so he says, cry for wisdom. And then he gives a few reasons why, followed by a warning. So why should we ask for wisdom? Well, first, it's because God is a giving God. How do we know that God's a giving God? What's the answer always? Jesus, right? We know that He's a giving God because He would give His own Son. We ever have that question of, God, are you a giving? No, no, I I look to Jesus and know, yes, the answer is yes. But not only is He giving, He says that He gives generously. The actual translation is that God gives constantly, and we know this because of His grace. Guess what? His mercies are new. His grace is always there. Next, it says that He gives without reproach. What this means is that God doesn't treat us how we often treat others, or maybe we've been treated when we've asked for something. God does not demean us or put us down for asking. He doesn't say, come on, Rick. You should know this by now. He also doesn't look at us and say, hey, I'm not going to tell you because you're kind of too dumb to understand. Not only that, God doesn't, when you go to ask God, He doesn't say, hey, look, I'm tired of answering, but also I'm real busy right now. That's not who God is. And then lastly, we can trust that when we ask for wisdom, it will be given to us. Guess what? God's not going to trick you. We saw that in the parable, right? When they, Man, God's such a good father. When you go to Him and say, hey, I want a loaf of bread, He doesn't give you a snake. And so we get these reasons for why we should ask. But in closing, I want us to see that He also gives a warning. He says that when you ask, you're to ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that person should not think that they would receive anything from God. For they are double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Now, there's a lot here, and I don't want us to miss or get the wrong impression regarding this warning toward faith and away from doubt. And so what we have here is a descriptive warning about doubt that relates to a wave being driven and tossed by the wind. So last week on vacation, we had a boat for a couple of days, and we were on Lake LBJ. And the thing about where we were on the lake is it was really narrow. And so what would happen is when the wake would, when boats would be passing by, man, that wake would dissipate out, but it would hit the shore really quickly. And guess what? Like it would just, where would it go? 
Well, it would just head back in. And so when there were a lot of things moving, that water would get pretty choppy. And then if you add wind into that, and, and so there were many moments when we were on the boat where uh, on the one hand, for those that got a little sick, whenever we were waiting on somebody to get on the tube, man, we would be rocking, right? And you would feel that. And they would be like, hey, we get those kids on there, let's go, right? Like, they, if not, we're going to be thrown up over the side. But on the other hand, what we realized is that um, because it was doing that, that was a really fun way to launch kids off of tubes, right? Like, it brought deep joy because of all the choppiness. They went off real fast. And so we, like, we, we were out there and experienced that. And that's what James, like, James understands something similar. You see, James, he, he was around the Sea of Galilee that experienced the same stuff. The Sea of Galilee, the wave pattern can go crazy in a moment's notice. The weather can change. The wind begins blowing from another direction and, man, everything looks like chaos. And so when talking about the need for faith, when asking for wisdom, James describes the doubter as being one who's completely out of control. That's on a wild ride to nowhere, but all the while he's flailing and grasping for any and all knowledge, any strength, any comfort, any escape that can be mustered to save himself from going under. You see, if this wasn't enough, James goes further in verse 8 with this warning. He says, this out of control person is double minded and unstable. The literal meaning of this is that he has two souls, one believing and one not. And it's this descriptor of doubt that, man, I believe sadly describes many in the church. You see, we could read that and be like, yeah, James is talking about unbelievers, but that's not who he's writing to. No, James is saying you are in the midst of trials. If you're not crying out for wisdom, you're going to be double sold. What you're doing in the moment. You who have received God's grace. You who are indwelt by the Spirit, Spirit, your doubting life means that you will not receive the wisdom in the midst of trials. Now we have to understand that James, is James saying that God demands from us perfect faith? Well, no, because if our faith had to be perfect to receive anything, none of us would receive anything because we all struggle with doubt, do we not? We are like the man who comes to Jesus in faith and says, Hey, I need you to heal my child. And Jesus says, Hey, if you, if you believe anything's possible, if you have faith. And he, what does he say? He says, I believe, but what? Help my doubt. Help my unbelief. And how does Jesus respond? Nope. You're not getting it. He says, No. They're well. We are that person. Not only that, but faith in and of itself is not something we can muster. It's a gift of God. And so James is not referring to the person wrestling with doubt, but to the one who looks to God and knowing that they're in over their heads and says in their pride, I don't need anything. That's what it means to be double-minded. It's to know the truth and yet say, I don't need anything. I got this. Anybody? Pride says, I got this, God. I can swim hard enough, I can think fast enough, I can keep myself afloat. But humility, 
cries out for the wisdom needed to remain steadfast and patient enough to allow God to lead and work through the midst of every trial so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, today what we need to realize is that we serve and are loved by a God who is not only the author of all wisdom, but the generous giver of it all at all times. In good and in the bad, the calm and in the storm, He is ready and waiting to give us what we need and to see us through to the end. Oh, that we would repent of our pride and our need to know it all attitudes and instead crowd in faith that He will give us the strength, the fortitude and the grace needed to count it all joy. Some have Jordan come back up and And as he makes his way up, I want you to ask, like, how today, like, how are you responding to trials in your life? Are you responding to self? Are you responding to Christ? Are you pursuing your knowledge? Are you crying out for the wisdom of God? What are you crying out for today? Today, where do you need to grow in steadfastness and maturity when it comes to the trials that you currently face? Instead of running from them. Cry out and say, God, I want to know more about you. I want to know more about who I am in you. And I want to know more about how you want to display your glory through the midst of this. Where do you need to allow God to have his perfect work? Today, also, how do you need to allow the church, which is the body of Christ, to be a part of that? You see, God puts people with wisdom around us as a grace. And we need to use it. And so I want to invite you today, man, just to to sit and think about, man, where your life is at, where you need to cry out for those things and wisdom and, uh, man, where your trial is and, uh, man... uh, at what it looks like to have active faith. It's actively pursuing the grace of God. Saying, no longer will I be double-minded. We would humble ourselves and say, no, I'm a servant of the King. So we're going to spend some time in reflection and singing and uh, man, if you're a follower of Jesus today, I want to invite you to come. You can share in communion uh, if you would like. Uh, we have two ways. You can grab the bread and dip it in the big cup, or you can grab a piece of bread. We have a few of the small cups as well. Uh, but, man, I want you to reflect on kind of, man, what we've walked through today. And, again, the response is not, I need to do more, I need to fix more, I need to change more. The, the response is, man, God, I need to posture myself under the king, knowing that he's enough. And from that, I'm transformed. And from that, I live out active faith. Jesus, I pray that you would calm the waters of our hearts. Lord, I pray for uh, the various trials uh, that are being laid at your feet even now in this room. Uh, God, that they would not be picked up again. But that we would submit every circumstance and situation and that we would learn uh, what it means to count it all joy in every season to trust in you because you are a victory you have won the battle and the god that you give generously of yourself to us
May we ask of this in faith, knowing that you will provide what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.